Well, good morning, church, and happy month of March. All right, so good to see you all this morning. <clears throat> so I was thinking back about this time of year as I was growing up. I remember this about the time of year that, you know, we would lose our jackets, and me and my friends would start playing uh, outside more often. And I would remember this time of year as my parents would be up night after night uh, working on their taxes, getting ready to pay something back to Uncle Sam. And I would hear people talking about Lent. Now, when I thought of Lent, I thought of, you know, something you cut out of your belly button or, you know, that down in the corner of your, you know, jeans pocket, that little fuzzy thing. Or when you pull the screen out of your dryer, there would be Lent in your dryer. But what I came to realize as I got older and I talked to one of my Catholic friends who was talking about why he ate fish on Fridays, I realized that this was not the season of Lent, but it was the season of Lent. Big difference there. Now, for those of you who may not have grown up in a church, or like me, were not part of a church that practiced Lent, uh, let me give you a little nutshell description of it. So, uh, Lent, depending on the particular church or the particular tradition, is a 40-day period before Easter, or I like to call it Resurrection Sunday. And it's a time where believers would traditionally take some time to think about the resurrection of Christ, where they would think about some areas that they needed to examine in their own life that needed some improvement or some some correction. And then they would willingly, willfully fast, uh, give up something, do without something, often for the entire 40-day period. Now, the thing that people would give up uh, would vary. Some people are like, oh, I'm just going to give up eating sweets. But oftentimes, people would give up a vice or a sin or a preoccupation that gets in the way of their honoring God with their life. Now, I, I don't practice Lent, right? And there will be some reasons that will kind of make, make themselves clear as we get a little bit later in the message. But I certainly don't stand in the way of or discourage anybody that do, right? I, in fact, I think that what some people choose to do during that 40 days of Lent, it's fantastic and it's, it's admirable. I mean, when I think about what they're doing, I personally, I'm a big fan of the resurrection. Um, I'm a big fan of self-examination, although I don't always like what I see. And I'm a big fan of giving up things that stand in the way of my relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm a big fan of anything that ushers into becoming someone who lives and loves more like Jesus. But as I begin to think about this, and I wonder as those who might think about this church tradition called Lent, that, well, without some context and explanation, well, certainly can come across as confusing, even even hard. I mean, why would anybody want to give up something they really like for 40 days? But in reality, though, when I think of a lot of things that we as Christians do, uh, without context and explanation, they can also come across as mysterious, you know, even hard to grasp. Things like, you know, eating a little piece of bread and, and drinking a little cup of juice or getting dunked uh, underwater or singing songs out loud on a Sunday morning like a well-coordinated flash mob. I mean, think about it. And if you've spent very much time at all reading your Bible, or even if you spent just a little bit of time reading your Bible, you might have found that there are some things that Jesus said, well, they're mysterious, downright confusing, hard to grasp. And sometimes when we read the truths contained in the words of Jesus, we find them to just be hard. They're hard. 
Now, if that's your case, if that's part of your faith journey, and you find some things that Jesus has to say are difficult, I want you to know that you're not alone. In fact, many of those who listen to Jesus' teaching during his public ministry, they found his truths to be hard, and they came right out and said so. And while many of us who are reading his teachings or his sayings today, or or we hear them read in churches, we find those truths to be hard, we don't always think it's fitting or appropriate to say so, or at least not to say so out loud, because we're, well, we're concerned what others, others might think, that somehow if we say that's a hard teaching, then it might be perceived as a lack of faith or a lack of obedience. And so this morning, I'll just say, if you've ever felt that way, I confess I have felt that way as well, right? I'm with you. I'll just go out and say it. Sometimes the things that Jesus said, sometimes the principles that he established, the commands that he gave, the truths that he declared, they are downright hard. You're safe to say that. Got that off my chest. I feel better. Hope some of you do too. This week at Fork, we're starting a new teaching series. You've probably seen the slide and heard Nick talk about it already, but we're looking at an assortment of things that Jesus taught that were part of being in relationship to him, that were simply hard truths from Jesus. Truths that are downright tough. You know, as a pastor and as Christians, I think it's it's easy for us to talk about those, you know, lighter-hearted things of the Bible, things that make us feel warm and fuzzy and, and good inside, right? It's easy to dwell on them. But as followers of Jesus, you and I have to recognize that being shaped and made into the image of Christ, it goes against what's easy, and it goes against what's normal, and it goes against what's natural, and it goes against what's popular, and it goes against what's prestigious. To borrow a Coldplay lyric from 2002, nobody said it was easy, right? It's hard. To be clear, though, the things that Jesus teaches that are hard, well, hard isn't bad. Hard doesn't mean it's not good or that it's not beneficial, that it's not the best for the individual or the church or for the kingdom. It just means it's hard. And hard doesn't mean that we can't obey it or that we don't want to obey it or that we don't have enough faith to obey it. It just means it's hard. And it's okay if it's hard. You know, if you think about it, there are several reasons that we might find a teaching of Jesus or a saying of Jesus or a truth of Jesus to be hard. Sometimes truth is hard because we're confused by the geographical or historical or practical references which are just unfamiliar to us. An example might be where Jesus washed his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. And then in verse 14, he says, And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I don't know about in your house, but friends, that's not exactly a 21st century American custom. All right? Anybody wash anybody else's feet lately? I didn't think so, right? You see, it's been suggested Um, that for the Western world today, the hardness of many of Jesus' truths, it's all the greater because we live in a different culture from that in which they were uttered and because we speak a different language than his. And although I agree with that, I think it's true, um, I know we got 2,000 years separating us and thousands of miles from where Jesus grew up. I wonder if sometimes we just don't kind of use that as a a cop-out 
an excuse to not dig in deep, to not seek out the truth and find its application for our lives. Sometimes I think truth is hard because we have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what the purpose was for his life and for his teaching. Remember, even Jesus' most loyal followers found him at times thoroughly confusing, if not downright frustrating. He spoke of a kingdom and a world and a life that was totally upside down from their way of thinking. He upset all the established notions of religious propriety, of how to act and how to relate and how to serve and worship God. He spoke of God the Father in terms of intimacy that sounded somewhat like blasphemy. He urged his followers to travel a road. Well, it was a road in which the view of most sensible people was bound to lead to disaster. Oh, when Jesus spoke, he raised a lot of eyebrows. I think he raised the hair on the back of some people's necks, right? And he raised a lot of questions. Who is this Jesus? What's he about? Is he really God? And what do we do with him? Do I follow him? Or do I ignore him? And see, those were questions being asked as he was walking on earth doing his ministry. But I believe those are also questions that are being asked by us today. You see, it's all too easy to believe in a Jesus who is largely a construct of our own imaginations. A God who is made to order to our liking. But the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels is who he is, not who we wish he was or who we want him to be. John 14, verse 6, Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And when you and I, when it comes to following him, we must choose to live like him, to walk his way, to go through him. Sometimes truth is hard because we simply choose to ignore it instead of searching and pursuing its meaning as it relates to our actions and to our attitudes. And just as people were then and are still being challenged now by Jesus' hard truths, if we let them, if we choose to let them, if we choose to understand them, we choose to follow them, those hard truths can change our lives. Problem is most of us don't like change. Does anybody like change? Really? This big a room? A couple of you. Some of you can like change, right? Okay. Most of us, let's be honest, we hate change, right? Whether it's our routine or our location or our roots or our travel or our schedules, we hate all those things. How much more difficult is it for us to change our minds, to change our thoughts, to change our attitudes? I think we'd all probably agree that the prejudices and convictions and preconceived notions and dearly held beliefs and opinions, they're difficult to change, to even consider changing. They're hard. Let's be honest, they're tough. And any suggestion that we need to alter our view, well, I think that can be taken as a hard truth from Jesus. And many of the things that Jesus said, many of the truths that Jesus laid out in his teaching were hard in this sense. They suggested that it would be good for us to reconsider our thinking and reconsider our action, even those things that other people considered to be completely fine, normal, and true. T.W. Manson, a Bible scholar and professor, said this regarding the hard 
truths of Jesus. He says, it will simplify the discussion if we admit the truth at the outset. That the teaching of Jesus is difficult and unacceptable because it runs counter to those elements in human nature which the 20th century has in common with the 1st century. Such as laziness, greed, the love of pleasure, the instinct to hit back, and the like. Right? Notice he said 20th century. This is, a, this is a guy who spoke several years ago. No matter what makes those truths of Jesus hard, though, I think they're basically two kinds. There are those, there are those hard truths that are hard to understand, and then there are those hard truths that are easy to understand, yet they're killer hard to put into practice, hard to live by. This morning we'll be looking at our first of our list of hard truths. And in case you're wondering what that whole conversation about Lent at the beginning of the teaching had to do with it, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. It'll become obvious to you. You're welcome to follow along on the screen or on your phone, on your app, you know, on a paper Bible. We've got some paper Bibles back in the corner by the Connect Room. You're welcome to go grab one of those. If you're using one of those house Bibles and you're not really sure where the book of Matthew is, we'll be on page 786 to start, all right? So first, though, let me give you some context. In the history of Jesus' life and his ministry, both Matthew and Luke record Right before these words that we're going to read in a minute, right before they were spoken, there was two significant events that took place. Two significant moments in the life of this movement called, you know, the way or what would later be known as Christianity. Right? The first one is a realization by the disciples that Jesus, and then the declaration by Peter that Jesus was not simply a good teacher. That he was not simply another one of the prophets, but that he was indeed the Messiah. The Christ, the Son of God, came to save the world. And the second major thing that happened, the second major defining moment, uh, was that having recognized, fully recognized that they were following the Savior, well, he emphasized that he would suffer, that he would be killed, that in case they had missed it, three days after he died, he would be resurrected to life. And these were two defining moments for those early believers because they recognized, one, they were following the Savior, but two, they were recognizing a Savior who was going to be persecuted to death. And it required that they would think of them, their lives and they would consider the cost of continuing to follow after him. And the same consideration applies to you and me. That when we recognize who Jesus is, we must also count the cost of following after him. Let's listen to Matthew's words from Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake... You'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Perhaps you've never read these words or heard these words before. Perhaps you've heard them a hundred times. But whether they are new to you today or whether they are old and familiar, take a moment, read back through them, let them soak in. And remember that if you're a follower of Jesus, these words, they're for you. They are here for you. And these words are for me. And let's be honest. These words, they're hard. 
They're hard. Give up your own way, Jesus says, or as other translations might say, deny yourself. Take up your cross, he says. Follow me. Let's talk about it. Jesus says, deny yourself. For the Jew, having this time of denial, going without something, was nothing new, right? Much like some believers, uh, you know, choose to do during the Lenten season to give up something, there were several Jewish holidays per year that one was supposed to fast, to prepare for. They're supposed to give up eating as well as avoiding other activities that might make them ceremonial unclean, unable to participate in the celebration to follow. And that was kind of easy, I think. I mean, it was just like six times a year, kind of a one and done. You know, give up something, have a big party, and we move on to the next one. But unlike observing a few religious festivals, or unlike observing, you know, 40 days of giving up something for Lent, what Jesus is calling, calling his followers to is not a scheduled denial, but it is a lifestyle of denial. A lifestyle of giving up what we want, whether good or bad, so that we can follow him more closely on the daily. Friends, there are lots of good reasons to give up something or to deny something, but I think it boils down to these three things. Denying me is good for me. And denying me is good for others. And denying me is good for the kingdom. I want you to think about this personally, right? Think about denying me is good for me. The lactose intolerant person understands the need to deny themselves of milk, right? The diabetic understands the need to deny themselves of sweets. The follower of Jesus understands the need to deny themselves of the things that get in the way of their relationship and living for Jesus. And just as that large glass of milk or that butterscotch blondie might seem good for the moment or sweet for the season, as a believer, when we give in to sin and temptation and the things that snare us, the outcome is the same. It's no good for us. You see, when I deny me, it teaches me patience. It teaches me self-control. When I deny me, it teaches me not to be selfish. It teaches me to not do the natural when Jesus has called me to do the supernatural. And denying me is good for me, but it's also hard for me. I believe that denying me is also good for others. See, it reminds me not to covet or to envy, to not to selfishly want what other people have. It keeps me from saying things and doing things to the perfect stranger as well as to the ones who I love who are, that are harmful or, or destructive or degrading or demeaning, even when I feel justified in doing so, even when I feel like they might have it coming. And when I deny me, it can make another's day. I know a church who spent this last Wednesday all day long as a church fasting and praying about the war in the Ukraine. I know of a small group here at Fork that's being challenged to skip their favorite coffee or their favorite fast food place for a little while and use that money they saved to support refugees. Friends, when I deny me, it enables me to put gas in somebody else's car. It enables me to buy a meal for a homeless man. Denying me means that I can give up a recreational pursuit on a Saturday in order to volunteer 
or to do a good deed for a friend or a neighbor or even a perfect stranger. You see, denying me is good for others, but it's also hard for me. I believe that denying me is also good for the kingdom. You see, when I deny me, it shows that I trust Jesus with all that I have and with all that I am. Denying me demonstrates that the love that I have for God flows over into the love that I have for people. And it makes the church of Jesus Christ irresistible. And people want to be a part of it. You see, denying me is good for the kingdom, but it's also hard for me. Jesus also said, take up your cross. Take up your cross. Now, you and I, we tend to look at the idea of taking up our cross from a post-crucifixion perspective, right? We do that with lots of elements in the scripture, right? We're looking back on history. Bread and wine took on a whole new meaning after the crucifixion. The phrase, love one another as I have loved you, took on new weight after Jesus went to the cross, Baptism took on a different meaning after the death of Jesus and his burial and his resurrection. So too did the cross. We look at it differently. Now the cross has become a universally recognized symbol for Christianity as it represents Jesus taking on himself all the sins of all the world. But in this conversation where he predicts his death, he wasn't dead yet. This conversation where he says, pick up your cross, take up your cross, he hadn't been there yet. But for the early disciples, this image of carrying a cross was vivid. It was in their minds. It wasn't foreign to them. See, they were living under the rule of Rome, and it was not an uncommon sight to see a convicted criminal carrying their cross on their way to their execution. More likely than not, it was just a cross beam, not the whole thing. But still, it was a difficult thing to see. It was brutal. And when somebody was walking through the street carrying their cross, it meant one thing and one thing only. And that person was condemned to die. You know, the fact that Jesus made such a graphic illustration of following after him by telling them that at the worst Following after me can lead to your death. And at best, it will require you to set aside your goals and ambitions and desires. It tells us that Jesus understood the real cost of real commitment. And he also understood the cost of casual commitment. Uh, we've, we've, we've dumbed down taking up your cross to mean things like, well, taking up your cross means putting up with annoying roommates or having to live with noisy neighbors. Now, see, Jesus knew that he was going to go to a cross, and he knew that there were others who would follow after him that would do that as well. And that those who choose to follow him should know from the start that they are surrendering their very lives to him, and it might cost them their very life. You see, Jesus understood the, compl- about the, he understood the price of complacent Christianity. He recognized fully the damaging impact of a life of sin, and he understood the toll that it takes on each of us, the damage that it does to those that we know and to those whom we love. And he knew when he said these words that only in being willing to die to it and die for it would we have victory over it. It's been said that only a cause worth dying for is truly worth living for. 
And I would add that if living for Christ and the life he's promised is not worth dying to self for, then I wonder how badly do we really want to follow after him? Because lastly, Jesus said, follow me. The very idea of being a disciple is to follow the teacher. It's to come after them. And to follow Jesus to go his, is to go his direction. It's to go his way. I mean, he is king after all. He is Lord. But far too many times we simply want a religion of convenience. We want to spare ourselves, to protect ourselves, to secure ourselves, well, even to save ourselves. But Jesus says, follow me. And sometimes we, we simply want to, to promote ourselves, to prop ourselves up, to provide for ourselves. But a relationship with Jesus Christ calls us to deny ourselves. Not just a few times a year, not just for a season, but Jesus wants to have self-denial as one of the reasons for our existence, for our daily living. And a relationship with Jesus commands us to die to ourselves because it leads to life with him. And relationship with Jesus requires that we choose to let him lead, not just for 40 good days out of the year, but for all 365. Let me close this morning with a story. According to the author Tim Parks, in 1849 during the Italian War for Independence, as the attacking French army breached the walls of Rome, military leader Giuseppe Garibaldi addressed a crowd in St. Peter's Square with these words, Fortune, who betrays us today, will smile on us tomorrow. I am going out from Rome. Let those who wish to continue the war against the foreigner come with me. I offer neither pay nor quarters nor provisions. I offer hunger, thirst, forced marches, and all the perils of war. Let him who loves his country in his heart and not just with his lips follow me. That's a moving quote. That's profound. But I, I want you to understand, though, that the freedom from sin... And the gift of new life in Christ is worth much more sacrifice than the liberation of Italy or any other country ever could be. Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. This, my friends, is a hard truth from Jesus. But if we will let it, our understanding of it and our choosing to live it will change our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to say thank you um, for the hard truths. Uh, those truths that will change us as individuals, those truths that will change our relationship to people, and those truths that will change the world The idea of denying ourselves, of, of willing that, being willing to suffer for you and to literally follow after you, to, to try to step in your footsteps, to go where you go, to, to love like you love, to live like you lived, those are hard. They're difficult. Um, so we ask for your help. When we face hard things, we ask for help. And so we ask you to help us to do that to live our lives 
in that way. To love in that way. Jesus, we thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.